Let's talk to interesting people. Let's talk about the process of seeing things differently. Let's talk about the craft of molding truth and fiction together to arrive at something new and exciting. And let's have fun while doing it. Welcome to the True Fiction Podcast. Welcome to the True Fiction Podcast, where we talk to creative people and find out where all that creativity comes from. I'm your host, Patrick Boggs. Tonight, we have two amazing co-hosts again, Norbert Yates and Marshall. How are you guys doing tonight, fellas? Doing fine. Doing good. You know, I love it that we've got Marshall because, you know, there's no last name and it's, it's kind of like Madonna. <laughs> I think it's pretty fun. The artist formerly known as Marshall. There, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> Hey, tonight we've got a really good guest. We have a very successful screenwriter and director from the heartland. True Fiction welcomes John Oak Dalton to the show. Glad to have well, you here you on True doing. Fiction. How's it going? Uh, it's going great. I appreciate you guys inviting me. Oh, absolutely. I've been, been meaning to get a hold of you and to talk to you for a while. So you are a scriptwriter and also a director. Mm-hmm. I do know I've watched two of your movies and a couple of your movies that you wrote. And I know you've got a new movie that you're working on right now. I definitely want to talk about that. But I want to go back a little bit. As a screenwriter, one thing I've always wanted to know, are you writing spec scripts or are you writing scripts for people that give you tag, you know, storylines? How are you doing it? Honestly, um, I haven't written really any spec scripts in my career Uh you know, I work mostly in the directed DVD or what's now just a direct to streaming business, direct to video business, whatever you want to call it, the B movie business. And a lot of times in that world, you have a title and sometimes an outline, and sometimes the poster is already done before you write it. So, uh, not very often have I, um, matter of fact, besides the ones I wrote for myself to direct, never written a script that didn't already come with, um, you know, kind of some parameters with it. And I think that's pretty, I think that's pretty common in the B movie world. I had no clue. That's very, that's very interesting. How did you get into that? How did I get into screenwriting? Well, I uh, went to Ball State University. I was a telecommunications major there and I did video production. I was a film major. And they had the David Letterman Scholarship there. So this is back in the year 1987 AD, just to put it in perspective. This was about the second or third year of the Letterman Scholarship at Ball State. David Letterman's a Ball State grad, and he had a scholarship there. And back in those days, in the early years, you would get tickets to the show, you know, if you won. And uh, his mom was there, his lawyer was there. You know, it 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 was a pretty big thing. And there were still faculty members around you know, in that kind of early, mid-80 time period, who'd been his professors from the 60s and 70s or what have you. So it was an interesting time to kind of give you a perspective in history. When my wife and I went after I won the scholarship to the show, Isaiah Thomas was on playing for the Detroit Pistons. <laughs> Chris Elliott popped out of a hat in the, in the audience. Uh, Larry Bud Melman was there. Wow. And the musical guest was Terrence Trent Darby. <laughs> so that gives Terrence. you a little 80s uh, dose of stuff there. Anyway, so I wrote up, I really, uh, I, I, was, I worked in television as a 
As a student, I started working at the local TV station when I was 14 years old, the one in Muncie, which is also the station that Bob Ross was, the Bob Ross show was made at, by the way. And, um, but, you know, I was pretty good in production. I was an okay editor and everything, but I was, I thought I was a good writer. I'd written plays in high school, wrote for the school paper. I wrote for the Ball State Daily News, you know, so I, I wanted to do something with writing, but nothing, no script had ever won the Letterman. They'd always been video productions, the top three prizes. So I wrote a, uh, I wrote a script and I was very happy to have won one of the scholarships because when they're introducing all the, they had a scholarship ceremony and they'd show all the people that had entered and clips from all their shows. Well, I just had a script. And so Dr. Weibel, who was the head of it at that time said, and we have this script and he dropped it right on the podium. And I, I was just sinking lower and lower, you know? And then when they called my name, I was as shocked as anybody. And I went up there, you know, the people before me who had won were like, you know, thanking their cast and crew, but I was kind of a, being an a-hole, you know? And so I, I thanked the Smith Corona typewriter company because I typed it and the creators of Whiteout is who I thanked in my acceptance speech. Uh, back then they gave you a check, which is you also didn't, You didn't thank the paper? The, the paper that you typed it on? <laughs> the paper. I don't know what, I, don't, I wish I should have thought about that one, but you used to get a check. Now I think they just credit your tuition or whatever. But back then you got a check from, you know, David Letterman's company. But because of people like me, they don't do that anymore because I took a thousand dollars of that and, and paid for my own wedding. And my wife and I got married that year. So I always say that David Letterman paid for my wedding. Nice. And then in the spring of that year, we the next year we went out to uh, to New York over spring break, our senior year, and I went to the show and did all of that. So that was kind of my my first entree into paid screenwriting. And it was something I could talk about for a long time, you know, where, you know, that I had won the first screenplay, the first script ever written that won a Letterman scholarship. And now it's pretty common, but back then it was very uncommon. Oh, you're the um, first. Yeah. Very but how I really, how I really truly broke in to the business is I got to know a Indianapolis filmmaker named Ivan Rogers. And he has since passed away. But I could I could talk about him for an entire show. He was such a fascinating person. He knew martial art. He sort of came up as a bodyguard for people like Fred Williamson, people like that. And they befriended him. And so he started acting in very, very, you know, in more like bigger movies and very, very small parts. And he would take that money and make his own B-movies, action movies, where he was like a martial arts star. And he made quite a few films, real like shot on film films. Well, I met him. He came to Ball State uh, and appeared on like this Minority Affairs television show that we had on public television. And I asked him, would you go to coffee with? He said yes. And we just struck up a friendship. And fast forward a few years, he was working on a film called Forgive Me Father, uh, which is a heartwarming story of a priest who used to be a hitman and his brother gets killed. So he becomes a hitman again, you know, to get revenge shot in Indianapolis. You'd find it online. It was shot on 16 millimeter, but they were having trouble with the editing. I was a bit by this time. Now, now fast forward. I'm, this is like late nineties. I'm pretty good tape editor. So I offered to, I can say this now I don't work there anymore. Right. So I went in off hours and nights and weekends and helped him edit his movie, which they took a 16 millimeter dubbed a VHS with open time code. And um, we, I would edit the tape and then they'd match that time code to cut the film is what was done. 
I did a lot of the action scenes and I never saw anyone alive until I went to the preview and then saw the rest of the movie. And it debuted in Indianapolis at a theater and everything. So, at the, and I kept saying, well, up at the end, we'll set up at the end. And so at the end, Ivan had asked me, well, what do I owe you for all this work? And I said, nothing. If you will help me shop some screenplays. He um, helped me shop some scripts and I, uh, I got in with a producer named Jeff Griffith, who's also since passed away, for a script called Player in the Game. And back then it was in all the trade, you know, the trades, Hollywood Report of Riot and everything. And my goal, and this movie never got made, by the way, but, you know, like Ray Don Chong was attached, right? You know, so of course this is very nice now. So I thought, okay, I was going to do like Confederacy of Dunces, you know, John Kennedy Tool. He had this goal of writing a hundred letters to try to get his book, Confederacy of Dunces, published. When he got to a hundred, he was going to commit suicide, which he did by the way. And then after he died, his mother continued to try to promote his book and it eventually caught on. And now it's one of the great novels of the 20th century by a lot of people's estimation. Uh, That's Confederacy of Dunces. So I had the same goal except for the suicide part, which was I was going to write a hundred letters. This is back in letter writing days. So I was going to write a hundred letters to people and say, hey, if you read this week's Friday in Hollywood Reporter, my movie player in the game is in development. It's on the same page as Minority Report. If you can kind of picture that in your mind of that time period, Minority Report with Tom Cruise is on the same page in the trades. Meanwhile, at this very time, um, I'm working at Ball State and one of my students comes in with these crazy direct-to-video movies from this, these guys called the Polonia Brothers. He goes, you got to watch these movies. And so I watch a couple of these, you know, kind of camcorder epics and I'm like, what in the, what is this? And it's like grassroots video, micro cinema. I didn't know all the words back then. So I watch a couple of these movies and there was just something in it. There was some energy in that DIY culture I, I always admired, but I wasn't part of, you know. I mean, I liked zines and underground comics and I liked independent bands, but I didn't know independent movies like this. So I just, the guy, Mark Polonia, I found out he worked at Mansfield University. I worked at university. I just, I'll write him a letter. So I wrote 100 letters and only got one response. And that was from Mark Polony. And I had something in development, but I got no response. I got 99, no responses. One guy wrote me back and that was Mark Polonia. And he and I struck up a friendship that's 20 some years old. And one day we tried to start a couple of movies that kept failing, couldn't get them off the ground. And then I, he wanted me to write this Bigfoot movie and I, it's called Among Us. And, um, I wrote that and then, you know, I worked in TV. So I said, I'll come out to Pennsylvania and we'll, I'll come out for the shoot and help. And we had a big time together. And while I'm out there, this is in now the go-go, like this is the go-go era where, you know, there was this huge demand for direct-to-DVD movies. Huge. There's like in the 80s, we had the mom and pop boom. And that's when the Polony Brothers really got started. They had the first movie ever shot in Super VS that was in Blockbuster, which wow. is crazy. But now, you know, we're in the early 2000s and there's this huge demand for DVD content. And so while we were making this movie, um, the distributor, it was already had a distributor, called and said, can you make three more movies this year for me? And Mark turned to me and said, can you write three more movies? And back then I thought, I can't write three movies in one year. You know, now I can write three movies in like six weeks. But back then I didn't, <laughs> I didn't think I could write three movies. But I said, yeah, I'll do, I'll do it. And I, so I did a rewrite over two films 
And then I wrote a new entire one for myself from scratch over the course of the next year. And what happened there was a very good summary of the B movie world. So I wrote three movies for them on like a three movie deal. One, the first one was uh, called Razor Teeth. No, I'm sorry. The first one was called Peter Rottentail, which is on the top 10 worst movies of all time. If you go look it up, tons of people. Fangoria Magazine did an hour-long podcast about how terrible it was. Now, you know, me as a kid, as a teenager, hearing that Fangoria was going to talk about me for an hour, that was the greatest thing ever. You know, and it still is. But uh, Nerdly, you know, which is the big UK the big British uh, review sites puts it in the top 10 worst of all time. So that was Peter Rottentail. And, but every Easter I get on Twitter and Facebook and people are watching it and commenting on it. And I comment back. And so it's had legs. Then I wrote one called, I rewrote one called razor teeth, which sunk like a stone. No one's ever watched it or heard of it. And then the third one demons on a dead end street, it just petered out and didn't get made. And that's like, that's the perfect, that's the perfect, B movie world. You have one that just hangs around forever, one gets made and no one ever hears about it, and one disappears. So uh, after that, I was off to the races. I started getting hired to write other B movies. I've probably written, and this is kind of like that average, you know, I've probably written 50, 60 maybe for other people, and 20 some of them are made, you know, about a third of them are, exist where people can find them, and then the other ones have you know, dried up for whatever reason, but I just kind of went from there. And then I was that direct to movie, direct to DVD or direct to video guy. And I've just worked as much as I wanted to ever since. That's awesome. As you're thinking about what you're doing, is it a matter of trying to write something, you know, like you, is it sort of at this point, is it kind of paint by numbers, you know, you kind of work through it because you said you could do three in six weeks. Or is it something that, you know, is like giving birth? It's really hard and difficult for you. Uh, I would say in between. Um, I think anymore, I kind of have to, I turn down a lot more than I take on anymore because I feel like I have to have some reason for doing it. Like my early career quite a few years ago i was just trying to break in and do stuff but now i kind of pick and choose a lot more carefully and it's not always based on money some of it's just based on what am i interested in what do i want to say about something and if they try to pit something i'm not i don't think it's a good fit for me or i can't see any way to expand what i'm doing or do something different or some you know I would say in, oh gosh, probably about 2009, I had 10 movies come out. Is that, no, is it 20 in 10 years or was it? I think I'd, I'd sold 20 scripts in 10 years from 99 to 2009. I sold my first one in 99. And I thought that might be a good place to stop because uh, my good friend, Ivan Rogers died, who I had sort of come up with, literally had come up with. And then John Polonia, Mark's twin brother of the Polonia brothers, died suddenly. And it just kind of took the wind out of me a little bit. And I thought, this might be a good place to stop. And I also had just changed careers. I'd been a TV guy forever, worked in television primarily, some IT, but mostly television. And then I switched and took a job in marketing, marketing communications, which was right at the beginning of you know social media. And so I sort of thought like, well, social media, I mean, this seems stupid now, right? 
And I thought, you know, this stuff might be big someday and I could sort of get into this because, you know, a lot of what we were doing traditionally was going away. You know, when I took over the marketing department at this other college, you know, they spent $10,000 a year putting ads in the telephone book. And I'm like, an 18 year old kid's looking at the telephone book, you know? Um, so I really thought that social media was the future. And I thought, well, with my background, you know, that, that could happen. So I thought maybe it's time to, to stop working at movies because, you know, my, I had lost two people that I felt really close to. I'd come up with and, and I was changing careers, you know, I was kind of doing a midlife, not midlife maybe, but I was doing a career change. So, you know, a couple of years go by and I was turning down work, telling people I was retired. Uh, and then, you know, I sort of thought people forgot about me, which was fine. But one day Mark calls me up and he's, you know, he's kind of getting back into it as a solo instead of he and his brother directing together. He said, I really want to do this old fashioned fifties rubber monster movie, you know, kind of like beast from haunted cave. And I want to do stop animation. And I was like, Ooh, I, I think I'd like that. And it was called Jurassic Prey, which I still think I love that movie. I, you know, it's made very cheaply, but I love the script for it. And that's what I always tell people, you know, even if the movies, now that one turned out pretty good, but you know, some of the other ones I've done haven't, but you have to be proud of your part of it, which is the script in this case, or if you're the PA on the movie, or if you're the director, or if you're an actor, whatever your part is, just be proud of your part. You can't control all the rest of it. And I was really proud of that script and it got me really excited to try to get back into it. Cause I was like, Oh, I want to write a fifties monster movie. You know, you, dynamite goes off and a dinosaur comes out of ice. And you know, it's one of those kind of things. Oh, I'd love that. Well, around that same time, I was judging a um, high school film festival in Richmond, Indiana at the art museum there. And they were looking for a speaker. And I knew this young dude over in Dayton that uh, was making a couple movies. And I invited him over to be the speaker and he did a good job. And afterwards, he remembers this differently than I do, but uh, his name is Enrique Cuto. And Enrique said, hey, I've always wanted to work on a movie. He's like 20 years younger than me. He's like, I've always wanted to work on a movie with you. And I was like, I'm retired. Never mind. But he was persistent. And um, one day he had sent me one of his movies that I liked, ended up liking. I liked the energy of it. It was called Babysitter Massacre. And then he, one day he called me and said, you know, I've agreed to make this movie called Haunted House on Sorority Row, and I've already got the poster, and I really need this script. And I was like, I think I could, that might be fun. And um, I remember I was talking to my wife and daughter about it, and my daughter was in college at the time, and she was like, you're not going to write one of those take a shower and have a pillow fight movies, are you? And I was like, oh, no, no, I'm not going to do that, which, of course, that's exactly what I was going to do. So instead, I ended up writing, um, because of my daughter, I wrote this much more feminist film. And it's funny because uh, if you, Wired Magazine uh, did a review of it, which was very flattering about it being a feminist uh, kind of treatise. So um, the, I did those two things. And then, so now it's like, uh, I don't know, 12, 13, 2000, so 12, 13, 14, somewhere in there. And all of a sudden, I was right back. And it was like I was never gone. And so anyway, I, I pick because any doing something, I do it because it's interesting to me or it's something I've never tried. There's got to be some reason just to write a script. I, I try to be a lot more careful with my, um, with my name anymore. I try, to, I try to do things that I'm interested in rather than just try to break in because I'm already broken in. So, in fact, I'm very broken. <laughs> I feel very broken in sometimes. 
But that's why, uh, to your question, Norbert, ultimately, that's why in um, 18, I decided to call in all my favors of many, many years and make my own movie. Um, because, you know, I'm always proud of my scripts, every script I'm proud of. And I've always said, you know, a movie like even Sand World, which is just derided. I love the script. I wanted to write a psychedelic kind of Philip Dick, Samuel Delaney kind of, those are my, I love what I always call hippie fi. And I wanted to write like a 60s hippie fi movie. And um, I also love like Tarkovsky, like I love um, Solaris and Eastern European Russian movies of the 70s. I love all that. And so I really have always wanted to write a movie like that. So when they were like, oh, we need to, we need a Dune ripoff. It was originally called Dune World. And then I think they were going to, somebody was going to sue them because hilariously people were renting it thinking it was the real Dune, which I thought was hilarious. <laughs> but I didn't, I mean, I've read Dune and everything, but I didn't base it on Dune. I just wrote my own thing. And now it's called Sand World, but I love the script for it. And Mark Polonia really leaned into the psychedelic aspects, but everybody hates it. But if it was made for $10 million instead of, I don't know, $10,000 or $10 or you know, whatever, I, you know, I think people would have liked it. But you know, people think that those low-budget movies are terrible and because you know, people think cheap is the same as stupid. And I always say my scripts are no stupider than the new Transformers movie or <laughs> you know, Friday the 13th Part 12 or Halloween Ends. They're no stupider. They're just cheaper. Uh, my scripts, I mean, side by side, I don't think are stupider. I mean, they can be stupid. They're not stupider. So in 17, I think it was, um, I, in a bit of weird circular history, I was hired to write another big movie for Mark Polonia. Now, almost 20 years later. And again, I went out and that's called Real Monsters and you can rent it or actually it's free on Tubi as is most of my career is on there now. But Real Monsters is kind of more of a PG rate. And I wanted to write it because it's about Super 8 filmmaking, um, which is what I was into. And it's about a kids that are, shoot a Super 8 film that maybe has a Bigfoot in it. But that was what I was interested in, you know. So I thought I could do that. But I went to the set and this time I really watched what everyone was doing rather than just hang around. I watched Mark, who's directed 50 movies. I watched Enrique Couto, who in a bit of coincidence was uh, the director of photography, who I've written five movies for, five or six. I've written maybe a dozen, maybe not that many for Mark, but quite a few, maybe a dozen. And um, I went out to the set in Pennsylvania again and, and um, kind of hung around and tried to really learn. Although I, you know, I worked in television like 25 years probably, but I was out of it. I was more of in the management side now. And so I was trying to really watch what was going on. And then I wrote The Girl in the Crawl Space, which I think, Patrick, you told me you'd see. Because I was getting kind of frustrated, you know, where I like, if I'm going to be, I want to be, if I'm going to make something, I, I'll be blamed for all of it. If nobody likes it, I want to make a movie for myself. I want to write a movie for myself with things I'm interested in. I'm going to shoot it at my own house, which I did, uh, this very house. And um, I'm just going to make my own movie. And, and, you know, I'm going to sell it on car tables at conventions and the hell with it. You know, I just no, I don't care if anybody likes it. I'm going to write the script that I want to that I want to see and put it at my own house. And I'm going to write the things that I'm interested in. And Dungeons and Dragons is going to be in it. You know, um, spaghetti westerns, zines, all that stuff's going to be in it. I don't care. And I wrote it and then I, every single favor I had made in all 
my career, including most importantly, probably uh, Enrique Couto, who came from Dayton and was my director of photography and my producer for my first time out. And actors that I met on other sets, uh, Aaron Ryan, John Hambrick, Joni Durian, um, they all came from Dayton and stayed at my house. Um, my old childhood friend, Tom Cherry, who's a big, really involved in theater in the Muncie community, I wrote a part for him and he plays the sheriff in it, Patrick. Um, he's my okay. old, old friend. And um, we shot it in two weekends. And I thought, I'll just sell this on the convention circuit. And no one was more surprised than me when ITN Distribution wanted it. And then it was suddenly in Family Video, the old Family Video. I didn't kill Family Video, but it was in Family <laughs> Video. It was in Walmart, Amazon, you know, and then eventually it worked its way. It came out in 20. And eventually it worked its way through its natural life cycle and was in Dollar Tree. And it's in Dollar Tree now. And I think more people have seen it since it's been in Dollar Tree, as far as people that reach out to me or write reviews. So I'm really proud of it. It's really a personal movie about, uh, really it's about, I mean, it's about a guy in a canvas sack chasing people around, right? But it's also, to me, it's about trying to be creative when you live in a small town. And, you know, if you see the movie that you can tell that's the, so the funny thing that happened is the day, the literal day that we did the director's commentary and all the deliverables, me and Enrique Couto to send to ITN, they were like, and this is, I found, I have found out since, and this is a very common question. What, what, what do you got next? And even I find myself doing that. If I'm talking to somebody that's working on movies, Hey, what are you working on now? Or what are you working on next? Well, the truth was I was working on nothing else because I was going to try to prove a point and make one movie. I wasn't planning on making two movies, but we sold it. And ITM was like, what else are you guys working on? Well, the answer was nothing until that very day. And that very day, which was January of 19, we were, we delivered everything. We were walking Enrique's dogs in his neighborhood in Dayton. We were talking about the movie Dark Knight, the Scarecrow. Do you guys know that movie? Sure. Oh, I love it. Mm -hmm. Well, Enrique is from the city and I live in five acres here in Moreland, Indiana, in a very rural area. He always said that my house was like Dark Knight of the Scarecrow and I'd forgotten about it. So I read it while we were making Crawl Space. I rented it one night and watched it, you know, in between shoot days. We shot just for five days, like a weekend and then a Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So the couple of days in between when I was prepping, I watched it one night. So we were talking about it that day. And um, again, because I'd seen it and I was like, you know, I, if I was to remake that movie, I don't think I'd make it about a mentally disabled person. I think I'd make it about a gay kid, you know, because when I was in high school, you know, I, you know, a gay kid got stomped, you know, and I think that would be a more relevant, a relevant line for today. And he was like, well, why don't we do that? And so we started talking about it. I mean, it's not a beat by beat Dark Knight of the Scarecrow, but that was just the core premise of, well, what if this kid, you know, somehow Scarecrow gets revenge on these people that, you know, tormented him. And, and we, so we, we talked about it in January and in March we shot it and it came out in October. It played at a dust to dawn film festival in Iowa city in October. So from the day we were walking Enrique's dogs talking about it to the day we were screening it, it was January of 19 to October of 19. And we weren't quite sure we were going to be ready for that all night screening in Iowa city, but we made it and drove out there and took it and, so then right after that was the pandemic. <laughs> so in February of 20, Crawl Space hit the video stores. And I was in Chicago for a meeting for work. 
And I decided I would map out, this was on a Monday, and I knew that the movie was coming out Tuesday. So I decided to map out going down I-65, right, guys, all us fellow Hoosiers, go down I-65, cut over on 2628, I was going to go home. And I mapped out all the places I could find family videos because they had a map on their website of all their family video stores. I mean, I was stopping in like Elwood. I stopped in Frankfurt. You know, I was stopping everywhere. I'd go into the store and say, hey, I'm John Dalton. I, I shot a movie here in Indiana. It's coming out tomorrow. And I hope you guys stock it. And they had it for the most part. And the people in there, the managers want to take pictures. I mean, it was really flattering. And then the world shut down. <laughs> and then family video closed for good. Uh, so that put a, a, a long... And I was actually developing a new film at that time. So, so that came out in February of 20. And, you know, a few weeks later, we were, we were all home. And then during COVID in October of 20, Scarecrow County uh, came out. And I really couldn't do anything for that. I, we were, you know, I was, I've told people I was sent home for three weeks and stayed home 17 months. Oh, yeah. So um, I was getting ready to shoot a new movie. And uh, I mean, I was like literally a night like on a Thursday night, I was scouting a location at a friend's house. And I mean, I bought the food for the ham sandwiches, you know, everything we were going to have that weekend. I had the drives, I had everything. I had the props. And the next day at my office, we were told you're going to go home for three weeks. And I thought, well, we could still shoot this weekend. And then I thought, no, you know, this, this might turn into something. And I'm glad we didn't shoot because I'd have half a movie because by the second weekend, as you guys all know, it was really locked down. But that first weekend, we didn't know. I mean, that last day of work, we all went, hey, let's all go to lunch together before we go into quarantine. I mean, we had no idea. But by that next week, we were pretty, we started getting the idea it was going to be more than we thought. So I would have had half a movie. And that's worse than no movie. Because since then, one actress has had a baby. Somebody's moved away. Somebody could have thrown out that furniture. We would have had all different, you know, so... It's just as well, but it really discouraged me for a long time. And very recently, I got back to it. Um, I had something a little close to that. Um, I was making a movie. It was definitely oh. micro cinema. And uh, it was called Stress Reliever. And mm -hmm. I ended up having a heart attack and I couldn't. Oh, my God. <laughs> so, um, it, was, no. uh, it was rough. And then, you know, uh, how it goes, people just kind of drop off. And I've got most of it shot. That's probably, it's probably, I don't know, 10, 15 years old. And I haven't, I haven't as yet put it together. It's just, um, you know, it's just one of those things. So kudos, man, for, uh, you know, getting back on the horse and finishing that one after the. Well, let me tell pandemic. you what, um, the market is very hot again, which is funny because I've now, I've been alive long enough to see three waves. Now I didn't really, I wasn't on the first wave, the eighties mama pop thing. I, I mean, I was around, but I wasn't involved in the, in micro cinema or DIY or anything, but the 2000, early two thousands direct to DVD, I was around for that. Um, and then when that, when, you know, the blockbusters and everything started closing and there was Netflix and stuff like that, I, I didn't see how people like me had entree to that world. You don't see those kind of movies on Netflix. And even, right. but you could get on Amazon and they were paying good back then by the minute. And then they cut the legs out from under that and they started paying pennies on the minute or pennies on the hour, you know, and um, that really scooped the life out of a lot of, scooped the life out of a lot of people. And I just didn't see 
how people like us were going to be able to monetize streaming. And then all of a sudden in the last, I don't know, maybe two or three years, there's all of a sudden all these platforms. I mean, there's everything now, Shudder and, you know, there's criteria. There's all these little, there's a million little Roku channels, right? And they all need content. But I think the one that has shocked me the most is Tubi, T-U-B-I, which I didn't even know was a thing like a year ago. And like almost everything I've ever done, stuff that was lost to the ether is on Tubi. And it's, it's just growing and growing. I think not far behind that would be something for like genre is Shudder. Shudder is like going crazy. And they're hungry for content. And I think what really blew my mind, and I never had thought, because I'm really old school in my thinking. Probably a year or so ago, there was that movie, I think it was called The Host. It came out during COVID. It, it was like this. It was on a Zoom call. It was, I think yes. it was called The Host. The host. Mm-hmm. Yep. And it was about the seance on the, it was about the seance on the Zoom call. And it was made in England and it was going insane, you know, and it was made for nothing. And so I kind of, well, what's this all about? And then I look at it and it's like 55 minutes long or 60 minutes, let's say. And I'm like, well, that's not a movie. <laughs> a movie has to be 75 minutes. If it's not 75 minutes, it's not a movie. But everybody that I talked to about it was like, I was crazy. And then it was like, but it's a piece of content is what someone told me. It's content. And then that kind of made me rethink that people don't really care about it. I mean, streaming and some of the, get on Tubi now and look at, it's, there's tons of genre, tons of genre stuff on there. Some of it's not very long. Um, Some of it isn't, especially a lot of the newer things might be an hour long and people don't seem to care. So I think there's some, And there's people that are dredging up, like I mentioned, Razor Teeth, which no one had seen or heard of. And, you know, and it's 20 years, almost 20 years old. And now it's on Tubi. And for the first time, people that I've seen reviews of it. And when it came out, no one saw it or cared about it. But, you know, people are so hungry for content. And so, Patrick, to think that you have a movie that you could cut together. Yeah, you could probably put it up in some and speaking of time, it's 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 a short. It's not like it's fifteen. Oh, oh. It's fit twenty minutes maybe. So uh, Norbert had a finished one that was actually really good. So, but how long was how long was that, Norbert? You know, I'm wanting to say eighteen minutes, but I I could be wrong on that. Well, you put a couple of those shorts together, and you've uh, got an anthology movie. So that's another thing. That's I see that a lot podcast. these days. Yeah. Yes, that is. There's a lot of people doing that as well. So, yeah, I think there's a new, um, it's definitely on fire again, and I'm sure it will burn itself out like it has, but there, it's definitely the stream. There's so many little, there's so many little, um, and I can't even name all of them, but just go on Roku and look at Midnight Channel and yeah, Midnight Pulp Cowboy Channel and Kung Fu Channel and all these different, there's a million little platforms for content. It's really, really something. So, John, before we run out of time, I want to talk about your new movie a little bit. Can okay. you talk about it at all? Sure. So, I, in the way of the internet, I had met many years ago a guy in college named Richard Pierce, who introduced himself to me through social media. And he was a fan of the Plony Brothers, is how we kind of got to know each other. And we've never met. He lives in Las Vegas, but we've written all these years and become Facebook friends since the invention of Facebook, you know, all these years. 
you know, now he's a guy with a family and he's a librarian and, but he's always been interested in screenwriting and he finally got a break maybe two years ago and he sold a lifetime movie. Oh, wow. And and then they liked it. And, and the way that these things happen, they started buying more. And last year he sold six lifetime movies. And so he, he doesn't work as much at the library now and he writes a lot of movies and, you know, he, and so he's been on the rocket, which has been cool to see, but he had reached out to me and he said, um, I have this rejected lifetime pitch that I really think would be cool to do. And it's about a, a smart house, a woman trapped in a smart house. I was like, wow, that really does sound cool. We were kind of kicking around. And then he was like, well, will you work on it with me? I'm like, what do you No, You're a, you're a lifetime writer. You don't want to work with some, you know, other side of the tracks guy like me. No. Um, but we, okay, let's just do it for fun. So we started writing it. And then all of a sudden we had some interest in it. So we, I think we started writing it in September. And then, you know, all of a sudden we had a distributor kind of same kind of thing. Hey, what are you guys doing? Oh, we're working on this. Okay, well, we want that. So and all of a sudden in December, uh, we were shooting and, um, and, and Richard flew out to Indiana because he'd never been around this thing we have called winter that he had never heard of. <laughs> and um, so he came to the set. We met for the first time in real life, IRL, as the kids say. We had a big time. It was fun. Uh, we shot a weekend in Indiana and we shot mostly at my son's house my adult son's house. And then we spent a weekend in Dayton and shot with some folks over there. And um, uh, we had a good time and we're in post. Uh, I think we'll be done in a couple of weeks and uh, hopefully it'll be out later this year. Um, but it was kind of, um, it was a little difficult to get back into the, you know, I hadn't shot a movie since 19, you know, and here it is winter of 22 and to sort of um, try to put those skills all back together and rally up people i and again my dp enrique coto also produced but i called a lot my good friend tom cherry plays a big part uh several other actors i worked with in crawl space in scarecrow county and we, it was just like you know the band got back together it was fun and so i think i think i'm back it's hard um i think it's easy to be movie world or any movie world i'm sure any creative world it's difficult, you know, and there's highs and lows and the lows can be really low and the highs can, you can be riding really high. And I think it's, it's really, if I was to say one thing, thing of encouragement is just, it's a long game. You know, I've walked away. Honestly, I've walked away two or three times where I thought I was, I was done. I, I quit. The biggest time was that time when my friends died, but I've walked away before. It's, and I think I've done, I've done enough in this world, you know? Um, but, you know, something will spark your interest or some, the ball bounces a certain way and all of a sudden you're back at it. And so I sort of think like, yeah, I, I, maybe I'll try for two. So I keep trying to think of what's, how do I push myself and how do I do something different and something new or try something I've never done. And I think for 23, I'd like to try, try to make two movies. Because wow. usually I, my first couple of movies I shot over spring break from college, the college I work at. Uh, this one I shot over Christmas break of college, basically. So I think maybe I'll do a, like a spring break movie this year, although I'm kind of running out of time to get one together. But, you know, maybe a spring movie. Maybe I'll do one in the summer for a change instead of a cold weather movie or so something. So I don't know. I'm, I'm just trying to figure out what might be next, but I think I'm definitely back at it. 
And uh, I did continue, I did write a couple movies for people during COVID. And one of them has just come out. It's called Jesse James Unchained. And it turned out nicely. It was shot during COVID. So they had some long layoffs and part of it, you can definitely tell is warm. And part of it was definitely cold because I was on set several days for that. But it's on streaming now. And I'm, again, it's a Western that I'm proud of. And I found out, you know, a lot of my work is really what's in like the long, what's called the long tail. Like there's a zillion people that want to see the new X-Men movie, right? And then there's, you know, a fair amount of people that want to see whatever. And then there's people like me down here that want to see all the Anthony Stefan Django movies from Italy in the 70s. And then you start going out farther and farther. And then way out here are people that are interested in my movies, right? But there, that's, there's a long tail of interest and those people are loyal and they're there for you, you know, what's called the long tail. So that's been my whole career. And I, you know, I'm just trying to figure out what might be next with that. I wanted to say before you know, we, we got too far, I really enjoyed the dialogue in Crawl Space. I was actually drawn in by the dialogue. I loved the, the characters and it was almost like the horror not, i know that's really not horror but the thriller aspect of that movie was ancillary yeah and, you know and and a little bit i mean in, in in a kind of a way that's the same way scarecrow county was but i will be honest with i really enjoyed cross when you're writing dialogue i mean and you you seem to be putting this stuff out pretty fairly fast how do you write dialogue what goes through your mind do you do different voices in your head or i think that's i you know when i wrote crawl space I really was trying to play to my strengths, which is characters and situations and dialogue. I don't, and, and other people, other screenwriters especially, get really frustrated with me because I follow no screenwriting rules that other people use. Like, oh, writing all your beats on an index card and plotting out everything and writing an outline. And I don't do any of that. I think about what, my, what characters I want to create. And what I want them, what their deal is. And then I just start work. And by the time I start writing, I've kind of moved all the furniture around in my head where I kind of know what I want to do. But I don't sit down and map the whole movie out. I was really into spaghetti westerns. And so I, I wanted to make that part of it. I'm always interested in zine culture and uh, you know DIY culture. I wanted that in it. Um, I mean, I'm really into gaming like Dungeons and Dragons. I wanted, I've never written a movie with that in it. But I just started thinking of who the characters were. And, and so I, you know, once I create those, I think I have a good ear for dialogue. I'm weak, I think, in other areas, but I have a good ear. I listening to people, talking to people. Um, I'm good at making up characters and how they would be, and then just the situations start to evolve. Um, you know, with crawl space, I there were two scenes I knew I wanted to do. Um that came to me first and one was the gaming scene where tangerine kind of reveals himself to his friends and they basically say we already knew this um not to give away too much and then the other one where uh, the actual girl in the crawl space where um everything starts to unravel for her and it kind of breaks the fourth wall which when i was shooting it i thought someone would tell me you can't break the fourth wall like this but no one did so i just kept doing but those, so then I just, I just kind of started from that. You know, I think with Scarecrow County, I was trying to, to do a more, like I tried to, my crawl spaces, 70s auteur, you know, long takes, tight close-ups, letting things play out. I really tried to do 70s style, which is my, that's my 
wheelhouse. But, you know, I, I thought with Scarecrow, I'd try to do more of a traditional, because really, Crawl Space started off, it was being billed as a horror movie. And then they, when the distributors kind of had it out for a while, they kind of rebranded it like the ad said, in the tradition of Kiss the Girls, you know, so they were branding it as more of a thriller. But when I did Scarecrow County, I wanted to make a true like 80s, 90s horror movie with fog machines and blue gels and Dutch angles. And, you know, and I, my first movie is more personal to me. The second one, I was trying to experiment and do things. And a lot of people like it more uh, than my first one. But I, I sort of realized after that, my new one is, uh, is uh, uh, you know, a pretty talky thriller again. <laughs> so we'll see what people think. Um, we'll see what people think. When it, but yeah, that's, I think I, you just played your strengths as a writer. And I think that's my strength. I, w- I want to ask you a question, and I'm going to basically steal Norbert's question. He likes to ask this question, but what is your stairway to heaven? Has it happened yet? Or uh, do you, you, you foresee that you're going to have the uh, penultimate John Oak Dalton movie coming out later at mm. some point? Mm. That's interesting. I think that um, I think different things have meant, you know, like, the, my first movie that got made, not the first script I sold, but the first movie that got made among us, uh, which is a Bigfoot movie, kind of a, it's a, it's like a um, doc. It's like a mockumentary. I'm really, because it was a first movie and it had legs. Like it played, it got sold to Canadian um, sci-fi network, which is called space TV. Wow. And it, and it played at three o'clock in the morning forever. And so I'm always, I'll always have a fond spot for that because it was the first movie of mine that actually got made. And then probably girl in the crawl space. I actually made a film after talking about it forever. And, you know, we knuckled down and, you know, shot it and it came out and not only did it come out, it was much more successful than I could have imagined to see it in Walmart and places like that. I, I, that was not my plan or my expectation. So, but you know what the pinnacle is, you know, I don't know. I don't, I just keep trying to do something new and some, what's going to be next to be better or different than what I did. So I don't know. I still feel like I have something in the tank. So, I mean, I have, I'm really proud of, I've, I've never done anything I'm not proud of. I should say that, but um, I definitely have a couple things that have been touchstones and do I have another one? I hope so. You know, when I made crawl space, I thought, Oh, am I going to be a one and done director? And you never hear from me again as a director. And then I made my second movie, which to me felt a little bit, I wasn't exactly happy with everything in it myself personally, but I learned a lot more because I try, I tried to do more, a lot more. Uh, there's a lot more effects and things. And then I thought, oh, was that my sophomore slump? You know, um, so I don't know. I keep, I, I still think I got some, one more thing in the tank at least, and we'll see what it is. Uh, that's a really good question. Let's say that somebody said to you, John, I want to see one of your movies, but I want to see something that you think will play good for me. Just on average person, what movie would you suggest of yours? Of course. I probably would say, I mean, if anything I've written or directed, I would definitely say the girl in the crawl space. It's very personal and shot in my own house. And um, that's a good, if you like that movie, you'll like other things I've done. You said something earlier where you said, I'm pretty strong in writing your ear for dialogue. And you said there's other areas that you're weaker in. And one of the things that I think of as I'm sort of OCD about what I do, 
and I sort of pour over what I do and try to deconstruct what what failed, what succeeded. You know, I do primarily illustration, so I'm like trying to figure out what works, you know, from the standpoint of, well, I'm good at this part of it. Drapery is something that is always something that is a challenge for me, but I'm hyper-focused in trying to improve whatever I see as a perceived weakness. Do you think in terms of like that, or do you say, I'm going to write, and if I, I know I've got this this talent for hearing dialogue and putting together something that people like, and through the process of doing it over and over, I get better? Or do you not think about that? Or do you have OCD like me? I wondered if you were an artist, Norbert, because I see uh, there's a drawing board in your background there, so that's cool. Um, yeah. I think that a lot of creative work that people don't understand, and I'm, I bet you would agree, agree with this on the art side is there's certainly art to it, but there's a lot of craft, which by craft, I mean, you have to sit in a chair and not watch the Colts game and not do other things. And you've got to just grind and work and put in the hours. There is art to it, but there is also craft and craft, you know, is learned over time with discipline. And so I, I think for me to work on the craft side, sometimes I, I need to, I try not to be in a rut. Like I try to, I keep a book journal and I try to read 50 books a year, which is basically about one a week. And I, I'm pretty good on that. But one year I decided I'm only going to read women. I'm only going to read women authors. Cause my wife, who's an English professor at Ball State was like, you don't really, don't really read enough women. So, okay, I'll do that. And then one year I decided I would only read books of, from people of color or people in translation. So I, I read 50 books that year. That was all that. And so, you know, I try to, um, you know, I like a lot of international films more than, you know, I'm way behind you know, Marvel movies and popular movies. I, I try to look for things that are, is going to give me something, a different way of thinking or looking rather than try to stay in the same, in the same groove. I'm a, you know, I was a film major in college in the eighties. So, you know, my, what I was exposed to then was, you know, like French New Wave, Italian neorealism, you know, but I also like Japanese monster movie, you know. So my, my traditions start way back there. Whereas I think a lot of contemporary people there, and I don't mean this in a bad way, it's just that, you know, their film traditions are like stuff that came out in the 90s, like Pulp Fiction. Pulp Fiction is not a classic movie to me. You know, uh, Dr. Strangelove is a classic movie. You know, Pulp Fiction is not a classic. It's just, you know. So I think I come from a different tradition and I try to, um, I try to bring, like I majored in film, but my minors were history and humanities. So I, I try to read, you know, I try to listen to world music. Sometimes I try to watch international films. You know, I try to um, just, I try to give myself, I try to feed my head. So I'm not doing the same things. So when I sit down for the craft part, which is sitting here typing at this very little, little cubby hole you see here, that I'm, you know, that I, I've brought some other things to the table besides like the, just the traditional things. But I think to really be a creative person, you have to put yourself out. I, I never watch the Oscars. It's, it doesn't, 
it doesn't exist in my the world that I live in. You know, it's not relevant to me. I'm never going to be there or make a million dollar movie. So I, I'll tell you something I'm doing right now. I read this article that um, you know on Tubi right now. It's become a real haven for independent black filmmakers, specifically a lot of them from the Detroit area. And you can, if you go on Twitter right now and put in Detroit Tubi, you'll see a ton of commentary about it. And I saw an article about it. And, you know, I've said, people say, well, you've been watching this. I've been putting on Detroit Tubi because I just want to see what's going on with these independent films being shot in Detroit that, you know, are primarily centered around black culture. Just because I'm interested in it, you know. Um, and there are people that are out there doing it for themselves with these movies. And there's some pretty good movies. So, yeah, I, I try to feed my head and not do the same things over and over. So when I do have to sit here and go on a marathon writing session that, you know, I've brought other things to the table besides the stuff that I'm comfortable with. You mentioned that you, uh, you're kind of a, your wheelhouse is kind of the 70s kind of yeah, thriller 60s type thing. 70s, 60s yeah. and 70s. Okay. I'm a huge fan of Italian Giallo. And Me too. I, I love it. And I wonder, I, you know, and I don't know because, and I love old 70s horror, but I, I, a lot of this I'm always wondering, is it because of the time that it was made that I love it? Do you think right now you could make a Giallo type movie modern and, and have it not seem dated or kind of cartoonish? No, I think they're kind of a product of their time. I think. What I like about that time period, and there's a great book, I think the author is Mark Harris, it's called Pictures at a Revolution. And it's about, I think there's this little time period that I'm really interested in, which is the death of the studio system in the 60s and the rise of basically auteur films, the death of the studio system. And this film, Pictures at a Revolution, is about the four movies that are the Oscar nominees, and I think it's 68 maybe, or it's like in the heat of the night, Dr. Doolittle. Uh, I can't remember what the uh, Bonnie and Clyde. I can't remember what the fourth one is, but it's about, you know, and you got this time period where there's, you know, Easy Rider, there's Peter Fonda, Dennis Hopper and psychedelic and riding motorcycles. And then there's a movie, you know, where like Leslie Nielsen's being chased by a guy in an ape suit or so, you know what I mean? Or Rock Hudson and day, Dan, Doris Day are fishing, you know, <laughs> It's like, it's, there's this, it's this weird, it's just an odd time, you know, when the studio system started to crumble and these films were challenging the status quo, that time period. And this is overseas as well, right? Spaghetti Westerns, the police films of Italy, French New Wave films. That, you know, one of my favorite films is Godard's Alphaville. I love that. It's just, anyway, but that whole time period where they're breaking down barriers, thinking of new things, you know, Truffaut's 400 Blows, just the whole thing. Um, even to some degree, um, Tarkovsky's um, Solaris and Stalker. It's just, it's just I, I don't know, it was lightning in a bottle maybe, so to try to mimic that entirely I think is difficult. Where I get excited now is just in the grassroots DV movement, grassroots streaming, where you're seeing these people like in Detroit, just as an example that are making, you know, I like seeing people making stuff with what they have on hand, you know, whether it's making their own comic book, making a record or, an, you know, or an album, um, you know, making a movie, putting out a zine, 
with their thoughts in it, whatever. It's just always attractive to me. So I think that's why I like that time period, Patrick, is because just the crumbling of the old and the start of the new. You know, it really makes me, and this is, I mean, we go through cycles and I always think about this, especially with the movies, because when the studio is closed, it kind of reminds me of when back in the, uh, the middle ages, when the Medici's were the ones that controlled who was doing the art. And then after a while, you know, so only so much art got made because there were, there had to be a patron for this art. And then after a while, and it was probably close after the industrial revolution, these paints and things became easier to get. And so then we end up getting like the impressionist and things like this, the, the people that are just, just regular people. Well, I know they're artists. I'm not saying they're just regular people, but they're doing what they want. You know, they're not doing just what the studio want or what the, uh, what your patrons wanted. So I, I, I seen that that was a big shift in the sixties. And I really thought that was cool. There's so many movies in the sixties for me anyway, they feel more like the slice of life. They feel more like real life in the sixties. So a lot of these, like when you mentioned Dr. Doolittle, I was thinking, thinking, Oh yeah, yeah, that that was such a fantasy. That wasn't what the people look like or did at that time. Then you have, like you mentioned, easy rider. This is exactly what people were doing at the time. This is what people did look like for the most part in, in certain areas. So that's what I really loved about it. That's a good, that's a good analogy. I think that's really interesting. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, And I think that's what's, uh, you know, when I worked in television in the eighties and nineties, we held the keys to the kingdom, right? There was no entry point for people. And now there is, you can shoot. I mean, people shoot movies on iPhones that are coming out. So um, and that didn't exist. So there is definitely a democratization of filmmaking, and which means that there's a democratization in um, in subject matter. That's probably a conversation we should have some other time because that could take up the whole night. I, I just I love thinking about that stuff, John. I I think we've uh, over overspent the time on you, and I, I hate. Well, to sorry keep about you that. Late. No, no. I I've had a blast talking to you tonight. I'm so happy that you. Uh, came on and got to discuss and hopefully down the road, maybe we can talk again if that's cool. I'd love to. We got us four Hoosiers on here. We, uh, we ought to get back together sometime. I, you know what? I'd love to talk to you after your movie comes out and then we, you know, see how all that process goes. That'd be fantastic. Sounds like a plan. John, you have a great night. I, I really appreciate you coming on and uh, good luck with the films. Thank you. Good night. Thank you, John. Thanks for hanging out with us on the True Fiction Podcast. If you like what you've heard, please visit us at Facebook. You can also leave us a review on iTunes or through your favorite podcast app. Until next time, stay true and stay creative. You're too late.